As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. It's this season's must-see drama. Players with numbers on their shirts taking part in a ruthless series of games run by a shadowy group of faceless men with a giant piggy bank of cash over their heads. Also, potential elimination. Yup, Champions League, there's nothing like it on TV and it was very much red light, green light. Man United this week in their uh, Champions League clash with Atalanta. We'll be looking at that game. What awaits as they take on Liverpool this weekend at Old Trafford and all the rest of the midweek drama and games in prospect in the Premier League in the next few days. Loads of other stuff coming up as well, and it's all in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Oh boy, Thursday 21st of October, and we've got Duncan Alexander, Adam Crafton and Dom Fifield with us today. Hello boys. Hello. Hello all. Excellent. And we're fresh, as probably a you listener, from a pretty rocking midweek in uh, top European competition, the Champions League. Duncan, did I see you positing this as the best group stage in living memory? Yes, I did say that, and I think it kind of is. Um, I think they obviously made some some changes um, in terms of seeding and stuff, which means that we do have groups now where there is quite a lot of excitement and some some games looking forward to. I think we got to a point maybe four or five years ago where the, the group stages were, were such a formality that everyone kind of tuned out until the last 16. But um, but this week again, you know, we had 35 goals on, on Tuesday. The record for a, for an eight-game day is 40, so we weren't far off that. And um, and then Wednesday was, was pretty good as well. So, yeah, mm. good stuff. I didn't know about the changes in the uh, in the seeding system. How did that work? Um, well, people used to complain that you used to get like three Spanish or three English teams in the top eight seeds. So, and obviously, you can't play a team from your own country in the group. So, it made the groups very hierarchical, if you like. So, but now they they give the the top eight seeds to to different countries based on their their ranking. So, you, you do at least get um, a, a slightly fairer spread. It's not. I saw someone on Twitter this week did a did an actual what the Champions League should look like if you, you know, every team, every country provided one team and then you seeded those groups. And um, obviously that would be the, the fairest way, but um, that's obviously not going to happen. People with too much time on their hands there. 
All right. Of course, it's been helped not just by the seeding system, but also the propensity of smaller, less fancied clubs to spring big surprises. This midweek round, though, didn't so much feature those kind of games as big clubs laying down fat scorelines again. 59 goals, as you say, Duncan. Uh, Big wins for Man City, 5-1 in Bruges. Ajax, 4-0 over Dortmund. Bayern, 4-0 at Benfica. And Real Madrid, 5-0 5-0 at Shakhtar. Barcelona, who will be facing Real Madrid this weekend in the Classico, got a goal, their first of the campaign, and their first win two at home to Dinamo Kiev. Chelsea picked up three points but lost two strikers in a 4-0 win over Malmo. Liverpool finally beat Atletico Madrid. Sheriff, whose wins over Shakhtar and Real have been the big stories of the previous round, got beaten this time by Inter. Messi got a brace in PSG's battling 3-2 win over Leipzig. And Ronaldo responded with another late winner for United in their 3-2 over Atalanta. Less than 10 minutes to go. Shaw. Into Ronaldo! Hey, all right, well, with Man United Liverpool on the horizon, uh, should we start with Wednesday's drama at Old Trafford? Adam, uh, this one is one that you watched intently, I imagine. Yeah, um, it's very chaotic. It's very fun. Um I thought United played better than they have in pretty much every other game this season, probably apart from the opening day, um, which I know most people don't seem to have, seem to have felt. Even when they were 2-0 down, I didn't feel like they actually deserved to be 2-0 down. But I also didn't feel like their opponents were, were doing very much. Um, and I think United probably got in behind them more than they have any other t- team this season. I imagine that is you know, to a large extent because At- Atalanta had defensive issues in terms of personnel, but also the, the high line that they had, I think really played into United's hands. And Mar- I think Marcus Rashford's a bit of a game changer for United in that they have a lot of these different wide forwards who want to come to the ball or cut inside. Um, and he's a bit more old school in that he will just run in behind repeatedly. Um, and defenders don't really like that. And that's where that's where United probably had the most joy in terms of finding a way back into the game. It was another night that, you know, all the same questions about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Manchester United style, um, relying on spirit and courage to get through another sort of overly difficult occasion that needn't have been really. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe this is the one that carries them <laughs> carries them somewhere more substantial. I don't know. It feels like we had the same discussion every single time. Um, right. But I think for in terms of, you know, there's loads of scrutiny we can apply, but I think in terms of suspending that for a moment and actually just enjoying mm. what was a really fabulous match to watch um, is okay as well. Yeah, uh, so what you like about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Man United, they certainly are entertaining. 2-0 down in this game, two aside from Bergamo, but then roaring back in the second half for a 3-2 win and going in the process from last place in the group to the very top. Crikey. 3-2 and cheers at the final whistle then, but then back to Paul Scholes in the studio. <laughs> you still don't feel that was a win worth celebrating? Um, worth celebrating? Um, well, you, you celebrate every win, don't you? I just... The first half really worried me. Yeah, that was... Uh, I've never seen a cut in the TV show more stark than that, because Solskjaer was giving it the... You know, this club's DNA, you know, you can never rule us out. Which, to be fair, that was their 15th comeback win since the start of last season. So it's gone beyond parody into some sort of hyper-normalisation now. But And then it went back to the studio and, and Skulls was just so downbeat, which he generally is, I suppose. But um, 
it, it, it was quite refreshing in a way to see a, a Man United player from that era actually calling out Manchester United. So um, that little barbed comment from Jake Humphrey in particular made me we laugh. Where he said, "We don't we don't get you on here to be a, a cheerleader for Manchester United, Paul," <laughs> which I think probably had a few heckles raised at other broadcasting companies. <laughs> It's funny though, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people seem to want people who used to play for Manchester United to just come out and say, this guy should be Mm. sacked. It's actually very rare. I can't really recall too many occasions at all where a TV pundit has actually said, this manager should be sacked and is not good enough. It's very rare that that happens. Um, I don't know. Is it the job of a pundit to do that? Is it his job to analyse the football? I don't know. It's quite an interesting philosophical question. (laughs) I think the big split generally is if it's a if it's a foreign manager, they're usually quite comfortable with, with saying it, and that and that's where it jars a bit. It's the he's Norwegian. You know what I mean? He's you know he's got a Mancunian accent. It says club. Well, Ollie back in a lot of people's good books now, and not least the crowd apparently at Old Trafford uh, because. United at the top of the group. My mind goes back to last season when, again, Man United had had two victories in the Champions League, but also a disastrous away performance. Uh, that time it was Basak Shahir. This time, of course, young boys would be the equivalent. Uh, but still managed to not make it out of the group. As you say, Adam, we'll see if this time around it marks a turning point. Meantime, we can celebrate Cristiano Ronaldo getting his third group stage goal for uh, Man United, his second successive late winner at Old Trafford, and a, a goal so big and important, as you put it, that he forgot to even take his top off. And he forgot to do his celebration, the um, Sioux uh, thing that he did, although some of the fans continue to do it. Um, yeah, he, I thought he was a lot better last night, actually. I don't, maybe, maybe Duncan can see if any stats actually reflect um, what is in base, which is entirely just my instinct. Um, but it seemed like he was far more involved in play, had more chances. I think it's just because United weren't playing against a team that was playing very well. And it meant that they had a lot more of the ball in the final third and he, he looked more involved. Equally, of that front four that you'd have taken off, I think if Rashford wasn't, you know, wasn't, I didn't, wasn't carrying a knock, I think it wouldn't have been a huge shock if Solskjaer would have taken Ronaldo off with 25 minutes to go because he wasn't, he wasn't brilliant. But I felt he was sharper than he has been and more involved than he has been in the last couple of weeks. And I mean, the header is, you know, we've seen it Mm. so many times, but the way that he just hangs in the air um, is really quite, I mean, he makes the, he makes a header just look beautiful into some sort of art. Um, And um, quality of the ball in as well by Luke Shaw was very good. Um, And it probably guarantees that Ronaldo now starts against Liverpool, which presents an issue for, for Solskjaer in that he has to find a way to make United a functioning team against a brilliant team in Liverpool with Ronaldo in the side. Looking at cutting-edge mid-2010s technology like heat maps from last night, uh, Ronaldo's touches were a lot more out-left than, than central, which I think, you know, he hasn't got the, the the kind of intensity and pace that he did as a in his 20s to play that role. But I think even this season, his best moments for United have been when he's been out more on the wing rather than just, you know, operating as a sort of Kevin Davis figure up front. Is Do you think that's because Rashford's making those runs inside, it allows him to drift out more, maybe? Yeah. I mean, Rashford looks really... I mean, he came back, didn't they, and everyone said, oh, he's put on a lot of muscle. And sometimes players say that and you can't see much difference. But you really can with Rashford. He looks really physically strong and his running looks 
you know, like it's gone up a level. I think that really does, that's going to help Ronaldo a lot. Um, obviously, Cavani came on and, and did well as well. So, yeah, like you say, Adam, there's more selection issues ahead of a very difficult game. Mm. Liverpool arriving at the weekend. Perhaps they can set off their fire alarm six times in the course of the night before <laughs> the game, as apparently happened to uh, the visitors from Bergamo. It is a, of course, tough-looking game against this rampant Liverpool side, a side who had a 3-2 win of their own midweek away at Atletico Madrid, becoming, in fact, the first side in 12 years to put three goals past Atletico in the Champions League on their own turf. Uh, Dom, did you did you catch the game at the Wanda Metropolitano? Yeah, I saw, uh, I watched it and um, it was a fantastic game. Another 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 cracker, really. Plenty to admire from both teams and, um, you know, I'm always sort of, sort of hypnotised by Diego Simeone on the touchline and I think he sprinted the length of the pitch when when Griezmann equalised in the in the first half, and then was so quick down the tunnel at the end, um, which is just brilliant. That sulky aspect to him is just great. Um, but it was it was fantastic, and it's it's. Uh, I know. So you have got United winning three two and Liverpool winning three two midweek, but there's only one of those games that was where the performance was really really impressive, and and I thought the way Liverpool went there against a really really top team and played well for a period, then sort of weathered the storm and then found a way of succeeding in the second half. Okay, they learnt a bit on the VAR with the, the third potential goal for, for Atleti. But what a what a win and what a boost for them in, in that in that group as well. And their their progress seems quite serene now. Mm, another terrifically entertaining game this. Liverpool had taken a two nil lead through Mo Salo, became the first player in Liverpool's history to score in nine games in a row. Then Navi Keita before Atleti sprang to life, Antoine Griezmann scoring one, scoring another and then getting a red card for sticking his boot in uh, Firmino's face. Second half, understandably, thus more cagey. And then the game kind of swung on that penalty not given to Atleti and the one taken and converted by Mo Salah. The Griezmann red card obviously split opinion. I bet some people thought it wasn't and some people thought it was. It made me think of when he, because he plays a lot of football manager Griezmann and he, um, there's an interview with him a couple of years ago and he was moaning about his own stats on the game and he said, um, they gave me an 11 for tackling, they don't know me, they've never seen me play. Um, I think 11 is quite generous given given that technique he employed. But, 11 uh, out of what, Duncan? 20, I believe. Right, okay. So, mm. maybe got 12 if he kept it down. But um, <laughs> Yeah, maybe so. The only thing, I mean, obviously, statistically, this was the hardest group in in the competition, and the fact Liverpool can win their next game and, and qualify is, is impressive. But it was also Liverpool's oldest starting eleven since 1953, yeah. and it does make you think. You know, they're giving a lot of contracts to to current players, and they're kind of gambling on this team going on a bit. And I know we've mentioned this before, and that's fine. That's definitely a, a tactic you can you can use, but it does make you wonder how many more. Um, nights like this this team has got in them Thanks Paul Scholes we're just celebrating a massive 3-2 <laughs> win away at the Wanderer Metropolitano Alright well Liverpool anyway five points clear now in that group of second place Atletico Madrid which as you say in a, a group that tough is pretty impressive Porto meanwhile beating Milan 1-0 in the other uh, game from that quartet of teams uh, Liverpool then this weekend out Old Trafford Paul Scholes saying Wednesday night after the performance against Atalanta Try that against Liverpool and to see where it gets you. Where do you think it will will get them? And is that what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to try on Sunday? No, I, I mean, I was just looking back at Liverpool's past eight games and there is you know, a correct perception that they're in very good form and very dangerous form. 
but they've also conceded two or more goals in four of those matches. Um, I think that will leave Solskjaer tempted to try and go after Liverpool slightly. I don't, you know, they've had games in the past where he's been manager where they've really just tried to basically draw the game um, and sit in, uh, particularly his first couple of home games against Liverpool. I think he might be a bit braver um, because I think as well he knows, you know, yeah, he's under pressure, but he also knows the squad is at a point now where if he just goes to play Liverpool, to play Man City and just goes very, very defensive, that it will feel like a step back in itself, I think. It, United are at a point where I think they have to be asserting some sort of style against the top teams if, if Solskjaer is going to make real progress. So I think we're waiting to see, aren't we, the extent of Fred's injury which is actually a potential problem for United in terms of how they set up. I think it was a hamstring injury he got. But I would imagine, you know, McTominay and Fred would be starting that game. Fernandez as well would be in there. I think with Rashford's fit, he probably starts now ahead of Pogba. I think it's maybe only a choice between whether it's Greenwood or Sancho or maybe even they bring Jesse Lingard in for his energy to help Ronaldo a little bit again. You know, so much, I think, of what United need to do now if Ronaldo's in the team is put energy and tenacity around them. And I think Lingard would be a smart choice. I'd be surprised how little football he's being given this season, particularly because he's looked sharp when he has played. Mm. You mentioned Liverpool conceding goals. What What about United, though? That defence that we saw oh, yeah, uh, in action. <laughs> <laughs> and Liverpool, according to Daniel's story here, is, have scored at least three times in the last eight away games. Is that right, Duncan? That's extraordinary. Yeah. So when they did it against Watford, that set a new top flight record for the English club. Obviously extended it again at Atletico. Um, and then, yeah, the ninth game is away at Old Trafford, which would be a, a sweet one to do. I mean, United have got the fifth worst XG conceded from set plays this season. They can't really defend set plays. Liverpool, one of the most effective teams from, from corners particularly. So I could see a lot of joy for Liverpool um, from that. But at the same time, as Adam says, Liverpool aren't defending that well. It... it it's got the potential to be a, an absolute classic, but also it's Man United-Liverpool, which also can end nil-nil quite often and disappoint. So just hope it's a really good game, to be honest. Uh, not to be mm. too mean, but Man United also hired a set-piece specialist coach this summer. And I would actually say on each of those, it looks like basically the individuals could have just challenged a bit harder for the balls coming in so it's you know it's very it's not a, it's not a, it's not a science but it's not a great reflection over the past few weeks of whatever that work is that's going on mm. shipping again from a set piece against Atalanta Dom what's your take on on Man United Liverpool yeah the potential to be fantastic and it will be a great occasion I, I, I suspect that United will they have to be slightly cagier slightly cagier than they were in that first half they can't go with this the 4-2-4 that seemed to annoy Paul Scholes so much. And maybe that's just a matter of Fernandes playing slightly closer to the midfield and and, uh, and just tightening up that unit. So I, I imagine that in formation-wise, there'll be something closer to what Liverpool turn up with and match up. But I think it's actually a, a dangerous fixture for, for Liverpool as much. Because I think United raise their game whenever they... Well, they seem to raise their game whenever they play Liverpool. Um, there have been matches in recent years where... Liverpool have been the form team going into this fixture at Old Trafford and yet and yet United have, have found a way of getting some kind of result from it. So intriguing and, and, and a fantastic occasion. But um, whatever happens, I still think that the, the doubts will persist in some quarters over, over Solskjaer and, and what he can achieve there long term at United. And, and, and weirdly, 
and United fans probably don't care. And I thought it was fantastic that the the ovation they gave at Solskjaer during the the post match press conference at, at Old Trafford on the touchline. I, I, I like that about that. I like the faith that they have in one of their own and and someone that they that they're giving their unbridled support to while he's manager of their football club. But I just think that with each each game where he sort of gets them out of the gets them out of a tricky situation. It's actually their direct opponents in the Premier League that are celebrating as much because they know that that will mean his, his stay at the club will be prolonged. 4-2 to Liverpool. Last time they met back in May and you wouldn't rule out that scoreline either way this time around. All right, next up, we'll get on to Chelsea City and other things too. So, Mr Klopp, what's been troubling you? Well, it's a very important time of the year and I'm worried we're not going to be able to get the most out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of big games coming up. Games? No, oh, I'm talking about Oktoberfest. Sauerkraut, Steins, Lederhosen. The one time Germany comes to England, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it can seem like they don't know what they're doing. But with Paddy Power, you always know you're getting Das Beste rewards. Like money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power. Pre-match bet builder bets only. Min odds 1 to 5 per leg. Min 4 plus legs. Max free bet £10 per day. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusive T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Become aware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Chelsea 4, Malmo nil. That's the good news, Dom. The bad news is that having called Romelu Lukaku mentally and physically fatigued, then picking him against Training Cones FC so that he could play himself into form, Thomas Tuchel got precisely the opposite result. Courtesy also of Lassie Nielsen's horror challenge, Lukaku out uh, with that right ankle knack. And then Timo Werner off as well with the hamstring. And oh dear, Olivier Giroud and Tammy Abraham have both been sold. Crikey. Yeah, to lose two strikers in one evening was, was, was pretty careless. Lukaku probably wasn't required um, for, for that fixture, as you, as you say. And, and having, having suggested post-match at Brentford on Saturday that he was... There was fatigue there, muscle fatigue after the international break. Then, then possibly it would have been the time to to rest him. But then, you know, Tuchel has been juggling those attacking options and trying to work out the best combinations. And and a basically a turkey shoot against Malmo was was an opportunity for them to to find their range and and uh, bolster a bit of uh, bolster a bit of confidence. And ultimately, that a lot of the attacking players will have emerged from that. You know, thinking that they're they're, they're back. Approaching their their form, I mean Havertz comes on and scores a, a nice goal. Hudson Odoi, admittedly against pretty bedraggled opponents at that stage, um, he he came on and made an impact. Mason Mount looked more like his old self, um, and it's just as well that those guys have found some form because mm. they're going to be without Werner and Lukaku for a while now. By the look of things, the good news for Chelsea in amongst this striker crisis is that they do have many other options no less than 15 different goal scorers for them this season the latest being Andreas Christensen who got his first ever Chelsea goal on his 137th appearance for the club crikey also luckily in this dearth of strikers is the fact that their next five opponents are Norwich Southampton Newcastle Malmo and Burnley Yes. And they have got a, a, a player who scored a, a win in the Champions League final playing as a number nine last season on, on their books in, in Havertz who can who can operate there until Lukaku is fit enough to return. I, I, it'll, it, they're a club with the resources to cope with this. And I know there's All been right. a lot of, the, you know, they've sold Giroud, they've sold Abraham, they've let Brohar go to Southampton, but... You know they they couldn't those guys wouldn't have got much game time at, at Chelsea this season. 
So that they, it was it was tricky for them to keep them, and I think they've got the, the depth and quality to cope well enough. All right, Norwich coming up Saturday lunchtime. Norwich haven't won at Stamford Bridge since October 1993. They haven't won anywhere since 1993. <laughs> <laughs> well, they haven't even taken a point in the Premier League in London since Tim Peake first went to the International Space Station, which I bet a lot of Norwich fans can't believe. The form, not the space station, although maybe. When did Tim Peake go to the International Space Station? 2015. Um, so a lot of Norwich fans won't accept that that there is a space station, but um, it's true. Um, it's been a is bad that a point for... in London, in, just in the Premier League, or in yeah, just in the Premier League, just in the Premier League, in the Championship. Yeah. So. Okay. Wow. Wow. Whenever this fixture comes up, I I, I always it, my mind drifts back to Dave Besant throwing throwing three mm. in against Norwich. Right? Wouldn't would that be in the early nineties? Right. At the start it might of even 90s, be that though? win actually. That yeah. It's traditional to cite Gianfranco Zola's magical goal. In yeah, the FA Cup against Norwich. It's, it's not a league game, that, doesn't it? count. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Chelsea taking on Norwich, and wouldn't it be a shock if Norwich were to end that extraordinary run this time out at the bridge? Just a question for Dom. I don't know if he actually knows the answer to this or not. Billy Gilmore, on loan at Norwich from Chelsea, has actually been on the bench for Norwich the last few games because Norwich have started to play sort of a lot more defensively. They've managed to get a couple of clean sheets. Any sense yet that Chelsea are a little bit anxious or uneasy about that or that there's a surprise that he's maybe, you know, not necessarily hit the ground running? The only logic in sending Billy Gilmore elsewhere was to play 36 league games in the Premier League this season. And the reason they chose Norwich over um, numerous other clubs expressed an interest in him, the likes of Wolves and Southampton had all had all had a look at him and, and inquired, I believe, was... The a the style of football would suit, and he'd play some he'd play in a good footballing team. But also that he was likely to be one of their better players, and therefore would get the thirty six games. and And it hasn't worked out like that at all. I suspect that he's quite frustrated as well at this prospect. And Chelsea tend to remember these things. You go back all the way back to McEachern going to Swansea, and uh, they never really forgave Brendan Rodgers. I think for for that one, it's they've they've held it against him ever since. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, if Chelsea right. are listening, I'm sure Wickham would play uh, any of your players quite a lot. So, just putting it out there. Would they pay? If you, if you have any defenders, players, please do send them to Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> now, moving on to the rest of the Champions League midweek games, what would be your performance of the week? Would you opt for Bayern's 4 0 win at the usually hermetically sealed Benfica in Lisbon? Bavarians have now scored 12 and conceded none in their three victories, or perhaps that 4-0 from Ajax, who routed Borussia Dortmund on Tuesday in Amsterdam. Tadic, Blind, Haller vraagt die bal, and kopt hem erin! Six doelpunten in the first three Champions League wedstrijden! Erling Haaland and company held goalless by the Dutch side. That's Dortmund's heaviest ever Champions League defeat. Crikey. And Sebastian Haller late of West Ham, with six goals in three Champions League games. Crikey. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, how they just continue to just rebuild. I know everyone just says this um, when they don't know that much about Ajax. Luckily, it's a sort of, <laughs> look at these guys who keep coming back round <laughs> with really cool players. Um, but but it is amazing. Um, I just saw bits of, of highlights from that game. The um, There's a young midfielder, Ryan Gravenberch, who looks absolutely fantastic. But, you know, you look at players like Dusan Tadic, Alaire, 
players that, you know, by the end of their time in the Premier League, you'd have struggled to really get good money for them within the Premier League. And then they're there in the Champions League, absolutely ripping it up. Daily Blind, the same. Daily um, Blind, yeah. And it's a real testament to them. And particularly, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a weak Dortmund side by any means. You know, Bellingham, Witzel, Brandt, Royce, Haaland, Marlon, Hummels in defence. You know, good team that they've absolutely destroyed. But it goes back to the, the DNA, doesn't it? Because a lot of clubs talk about their DNA, but Ajax <laughs> genuinely do have a way of playing that from 11 years old all the way through to the first team. So everyone knows their role. And, and I think that is important because, you know, particularly in modern football, you can't just kind of chuck 11 players out there and go run around and, and do some magic. So I thought you could if you were at Old Trafford. Still, Sometimes. four teams currently on three wins out of three. Liverpool, Bayern and Juventus being the other three of those. Juve who had their fourth 1-0 win in a row after Chelsea, Torino in the Derby and Roma last weekend. They won away at Zenit St. Petersburg. They're taking on Inter next weekend in what's going to be an absolutely huge Day four football games across the continent. You've got Le Classique, Marseille PSG, you've got El Clasico this weekend in La Liga, and as mentioned previously, Yemen United Liverpool. Are we sure the fixture computers haven't become sentient like in Terminator? Because that seems a long shot that all Don't those games. Don't recall the fixture computer being a key part of the of the you know plot line in. In Terminator 2, the fixture computer um, <laughs> destroyed the world because it was angry about early kickoffs. I think that's the plot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Man City, Duncan, living embodiment yes. of the supercomputer that is Pep Guardiola's footballing brain. A 5 1 win for them over the previously impressive Bruges. What do you want to tell us about this game, Duncan? Well, it was a very solid professional performance by City. I mean, it's a sort of it's sort of game you imagine a team as good as them would have in the Champions League, but it often doesn't work out like that. They've since um, Guardiola took over, they've scored five or more goals in a game forty times. The next highest in that period, Liverpool with twenty-one, and Spurs with nineteen, and obviously twenty-one out of nineteen equals forty. So that you know, when City cut loose, they they really do. So yeah, it was uh, good. Obviously, Cole Palmer scoring um, mm. very quickly. That was you know another. You know they do get criticised for their spending power, but you know City do have a recently a very good record of of youth players. Obviously Phil Foden has now got six goals and six assists in the Champions League. The only player to provide more goals and assists under Guardiola before being 22 is uh, Lionel Messi. So he's in good My word. good company there. Uh, Cole Palmer scoring just two minutes after coming on, which makes him the quickest English goal scorer on a Champions League debut if this is a stat you care about, uh, since uh, Mark Albrighton. Uh, good. Of course, he did feature briefly for City against Burnley and also, Duncan, against your friends Wickham Wanderers. Yes, he looked He looked very good that evening. There's another youngster that City fans are really raving about, James McAtee, um, who also plays slightly deeper than, than Palmer, but again, really, you know, kind of Foden-esque talent. So they really, you know... We've talked about Chelsea's loans, but there's some good loan opportunities in, in City's youngsters, although I don't imagine Cole Palmer will be going out on loan. He seems pretty integrated with the first team now. James McAtee is known internally at Man City as the Salford Silver. It's a lovely nickname. Mm. And I think he previously turned down Man United as well. Very highly rated there. One to watch. All right. Uh, City taking on Brighton. That's Saturday tea time. And it is... A clash of third v fourth. Remarkable. Actually, Brighton, 
Do you remember this? They they won this fixture back in May. City had already been crowned champions at this point, but uh, Brighton with a 3-2 victory, ending a run of eight successive defeats against Pep's side. Only the big four have completed more passes than Brighton this season. Dom? Yeah, they're doing very well. And it's... Uh... It's reward for long-term planning on um, sticking with Graham Potter. I should well point planned. out that the look on Dom's face when he said that was... Uh, you, could, you could see it all the way down the M23. <laughs> no, no, we're not talking about that. Um, no, I, 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 they, they are very impressive. And there's, good. It's, it's good that the team is... Um, we, we spoke about the, you know, the, the, the building of that club from... Pretty much from scratch, from its with Dean days post Goldstone, and now they've got a team to match the sparkling facilities um, at Stadium and Lansing Training Ground. And uh, it's going Are you reading well. this off Good Wikipedia? Luck to them. <laughs> 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 uh, federal through gritted teeth. Right. All right. Well, anyway, they're taking on uh, Man City at tea time Saturday at three. Crystal Palace will be taking Ooh. on Newcastle. We'll talk about that next. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which might just come in handy when Brighton start being Brighton again and go back to outperforming their XG and not winning. Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match shots. T's and C's apply. It's over 18s only. And please gamble responsibly. Yep, Crystal Palace against Newcastle Saturday at 3. Dom, you're going to be there. Uh, Steve Bruce won't be. Uh, we learned this week another piece of the old Newcastle departing. Who's the hot favourite to take over? Probably Graham Jones for the foreseeable future. <laughs> right. I mean, he's taking interim charge. Yeah, yeah. Jones has been assistant manager at Swansea, Wigan, Everton and Belgium mm-hmm. in all four cases to the same man, Roberto Martinez. Is that significant? Only in that it might tell us something about how Newcastle might try and play. It sounds like it's Paolo Fonseca who's already had an interview um, or held talks. Um, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard seem to be the names going around. Eddie Howe, I'm never really sure with Eddie Howe whether it's just people thinking, oh, Eddie Howe might be a good idea, or whether it's this club really, really wants to talk to Eddie Howe. Um, but I think that's where they are at the moment. I don't think, I'm not sure it would necessarily be a very quick appointment. Um, it does sound like Jones will definitely be there on Saturday um, and possibly beyond that for a couple of games as well. The new owners seem to be talking about doing some sort of structural um, look at the club and what it needs. And, you know, they don't, they need to hire a CEO and they need to hire, I think they want to hire a sporting director as well. Um, so they're sort of attempting to build a club while attempting to stay in the Premier League, which should make for a very entertaining few months. Mm. They're in the bottom three at present and facing a Doma Palace team themselves with bold new ambitions under a new boss. Uh, a team fresh from a Monday night clash with Arsenal at the Emirates, which I think sp- speaks 
to the the expectations now of, of Palace fans, given how disappointed they were to only take a point from this game with Arsenal. Yeah, that's the nature of conceding a 96th minute equaliser, I guess. Fair but, enough. But, but generally, they they did play well, and they have been playing well for a, for a while, really, since the opening day of the season. When the, and, and maybe the the Brentford game second up, when they they were a bit of a they looked a bit of a work in progress, but. No, they are they're playing well, but they're not getting the wins. I mean, one win against um, nine Premier League opponents, including the League Cup loss at Watford this season. So, this is a game they have to tug because they go to Manchester City the following week, um, mm. and they won't want to be going there with you know the possibility of having fewer points than games played. Things are looking up there. Things are looking up. But yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I think they. I think they will. They create a lot of chances. And, and Newcastle conceded a lot of chances. And I don't really... Well, Graham Jones may surprise us. But I sus- even if, if even if Newcastle go slightly less attack-minded for this fixture, I still think their defence is vulnerable. So I suspect that Palace with, with Zaha coming back in and Elise potentially getting a first start and possibly mm. Eberich Eze on the bench, possibly, then I think there are there are a few options there for Vieira and it's it's just a matter of whether they can cut out the individual mistakes at the other end. Mm. Meantime, with Steve Bruce departing, everyone's suddenly remembering that they really like the guy. Uh, fulsome eulogies for him, perhaps provoked by his poignant declaration that this might be his last job and people have been calling him a tactically inept cabbage head. Lovely words and, and very heartfelt. I think, from Alan Sam Maximow, who called him, without a doubt, one of the most gentle people he'd ever met in the world of football. I will never forget how you treated me, and for that I will be forever grateful. Lovely stuff from the very lovely Alan Sam Maximow. There's a very good subplot to this game between Steve Parrish and the new Newcastle owners as well, um, which is that this very controversial rule that, well, ruling or vote that came in at the Premier League shareholders meeting this week in which... Basically, it's, it's an attempt to prevent what they call related party sponsorships. So it's basically if it's a company or a brand that might be very clearly linked to the owner of a football club, then sponsoring the club in order to potentially inflate what that sponsorship might be worth is, I think, what the fear is. So it's things such as with Newcastle being owned by uh, the Saudi Public Investment Fund, if, for example, Saudi Aramco decided all of a sudden that Newcastle shirt sponsorship was worth three times as much as what um, Fun 88 or whatever it is that's currently on the shirt um, <laughs> has decided, then that would be an issue for Premier League clubs. And it's, it's a debate we've seen over the years with PSG and Manchester mm. City. These, these, these accusations, I think it's something that UEFA have looked into as well. So there was this big meeting on on Monday, an emergency Premier League meeting. Um, at this meeting, you know, there's been some clubs that have wanted to introduce these rules for a while, and by the sounds of it, Steve Parrish was one of the more vocal voices at the meeting, arguing, you know, that this is potentially very unfair from a sporting advantage point of view in terms of what it could offer to Newcastle. And you know, he was one of a number of clubs. It wasn't just Steve Parrish. Um, and it led to a vote. 18 clubs voted in favour. Newcastle voted against it. Manchester City abstained. Um, and Newcastle also made clear through Lee Charnley, who of course is known as Mike Ashley's man, um, who was present at the meeting rather than any of the new owners, made clear that they were prepared to take legal action over it. So all great fun and should make for a lovely atmosphere in the director's box. 
Adam, I see that one of the executives present described it as the most extraordinary meeting he'd ever attended. Mm. I can't, I certainly can't remember other teams in a league getting together quite so openly to specifically target another of, of the league's members in this fashion. No, but I mean, they, they, they have known that the Saudis are interested in buying Newcastle for about three or four years now. Um, and there's no reason they couldn't have done this a little bit earlier. Um, and it feels a little bit of a symbolic gesture um, to try and, you know, to try and put a line in the sand. Um, it's only a three-week ru- ruling. Um, and I think the idea is that that's supposed to buy time in order to prepare some kind of more official framework that they can then hold a vote on. But I do think it will be subject to legal challenge from Newcastle. Does this speak to a kind of widespread panic among the other Premier League sides about what Newcastle might represent, just purely in terms of financial competitiveness? And secondly, shouldn't it, if it's to be at all fair, be retrospectively binding for Man City and their pretty fanciful Etihad deal? Well, that's that's a very fair point. And it's not just Manchester City who could potentially be affected. You know, you look at Leicester and King Power Stadium, for example, or... Everton's um, sponsorship of their training ground, I think, would also come under scrutiny. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think you would see question marks presented by Newcastle towards towards that. Um, absolutely, as you say, the, the first point around everyone panicking a little bit. I think what's unique about this Newcastle situation is it kind of directly affects everyone in the league because if you're Burnley or Southampton, all of a sudden you've got a team that you thought were probably going to go down with a load of money to spend in January that puts you into more difficulty. If you're Leicester or Everton or Aston Villa, one of those clubs pushing towards the tops, the top six, all of a sudden you're a little bit further down in that chase. And then if you are particularly those sort of American-owned big six clubs, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, who rely on revenue rather than alleged state aid, um, then... It goes from uh, uh, six into four, seven into four, potentially for the Champions League places and the title. So I think the only two clubs that you know, would probably be absolutely okay are Chelsea and Manchester City in terms of just the wealth of their, of their owners. But even Chelsea have voted against this. And you know, I don't think they're particularly impacted by party-related transactions. And we know actually that their net spend is generally pretty good as well, isn't it? So it's triggering all different parts of the league. And I think that's what's you know, compelling them to, to gang up a little bit because people can see both the short-term and medium and long-term damage. And I think there is also a bit of a point within, despite they're predominantly being led by their concerns over the, the sporting advantage, but I think they are also very, very un, unhappy with the way the Premier League centrally has communicated about this, both internally to the clubs and also to the public as well. Um, although I do have some sympathy for the Premier League in that, in that, Clearly, there are there is a, a level of, of government pressure, I think it's fair to say, that is limiting their ability to communicate on this takeover. Well, all sorts of issues. Of course, every time we raise uh, Newcastle, the subject, in their current guise. We'll come back to some of those a little bit later on. Uh, Duncan, I think you've got some words for Steve Bruce there, haven't you? Well, I was going to do the unfashionable thing and, and defend Newcastle fans a little bit um, around some of the criticism they've got about you know the uh, Steve Bruce's departure because he does kind of end most of his managerial spells you know in this way um, having been sort of you know hanging on for quite a while and eventually getting sacked and, and sort of you know 
saying that he might not manage again. I, I think he will, and I think it, it's just, you know, he, the football's been so uninspiring. I think the fans were totally within their rights to uh, to want him gone. 20 years ago, it was Palace he was leaving, Dom, but you guys wanted to keep him. Yeah, it was that was a weird one. I think his win percentage at Palace was the highest of all his clubs, I think like 67%, and he was only there for like three months or something, but he took them to the top of the league at a, a club that had survived previous year against relegation um, to the third tier on the final day so he transformed the place in in one summer really made them a free-flowing attack-minded team Um, won seven on the bounce went top of the league and then walked out to join Birmingham City and Simon Jordan um, put him on gardening leave and there was this really weird situation for I don't remember how long it lasted probably about three or four weeks, where he was on gardening leave. Palace were trying to sign Trevor Francis, who was the manager he was going to replace at Birmingham City. And they basically did a job swap in the end. And Mm. uh, Francis successfully took uh, Palace into mid-table and uh, Steve Bruce took Birmingham up. Is, Is that when Steve Bruce wrote his books, when he was on gardening leave? Well, it was only about three weeks, so it would it would explain explain the quality probably. <laughs> Palace then sacked Trevor Francis on his birthday, which was quite cruel. After a four-one win at Grimsby, I think. Mm. Like that after he'd punched the goalkeeper a few months earlier as well. I think the Allegedly. point stands that that football fans may not understand geopolitics widely some sometimes, but I've never known a fan base wanting a manager out by mistake. Do you know what I mean? They fans do know when when the when a manager's reached the end of his tenure. The wisdom of crowds, says Duncan. Very good. And next up, let's throw a little light on Leeds and their apparent decline. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Leeds. Their apparent decline is one of the stories of the season so far, I would suggest. Bielsa's side beaten by Saints last weekend, outrun, outpassed, outpressed as well. They're currently just one place above the drop. Ahead of Saturday's clash with Wolves, we asked The Athletic's and Leeds correspondent Phil Hay how worried they should be. Phil, I haven't tried it, but I'm pretty sure that if you put Bielsa into a search engine, burnout would be the second top entry. The first one, of course, would be, uh, and it was beautiful, Marcelo Bielsa and the rebirth of Leeds United, your excellent uh, book. Is that what we're seeing with Leeds here with just one win and one place above the bottom three? 
Thank you for the plug. I can I can always rely on Athletic Podcast to um to do me proud in that sense. You're not wrong about burnout. Um, and it's actually followed Bielsa around for an awful lot longer than his time at Leeds, way back to to Bill Bow. Um, but but it has been there in the background always because people have this assumption and, and this expectation that at some point the, the intensity of training and the intensity of the performances will catch up with him. I think it would be unfair, even if it goes wrong for him, and, and you know it, it will end eventually, the BLC era, it, it has to, nothing lasts forever, but I think it would be unfair to to single out burnout as the as the issue, given that for three years they've played as well as they have and, and consistently as they have. But there's no doubt at all at the moment that on top of a pretty long injury list, there is a dearth of form across the squad. I, I think there are individual players en masse who are playing within themselves and and. I think physically, if you look at the stats and if you speak to Leeds, they still see the same sort of output and they don't feel like there's a, a flagging physical effort there. But the performances so far this season are, are nowhere near the best that we've seen under Bielsa. Mm. I mean, the injuries are, are significant, but so are some of the numbers. Uh, against Saints last Saturday, something that might worry the, the great man himself, it was the first time that they'd been outrun by the opposition in his time in charges by Saints that I believe they're also passing less and pressing less by some metrics. One of the things that has jumped out to me are the attacking stats in particular. Um, Leeds have never been a particularly high-scoring team. Bielsa has spoken right from the start about what he calls a, a lack of efficiency, which is his way of saying a, a, you know, a, a poor level of finishing. But Leeds have always, always created chances. Um, and it wasn't unusual at all in the Premier League last season for the, their XG in individual games to climb above two. They haven't hit that at all this season. Their, their XG over the first eight games is down at exactly one. And that is a that is a shortcoming. And, and given that Leeds do have periods where they do concede goals, where they can be a bit porous at the back, strong attacking players has always been one of the hallmarks of Bielsa's team, but it's always be, been the thing that has helped to keep them out of trouble. The precision of the passing isn't there in the way that it was previously. The cohesion of the team isn't there either. I think the way Southampton played on Saturday with a very high press, it was kind of tailor-made for Leeds to to unleash one of the kind of hidden strengths, which is really strong and really quick. Counter-attacking football, they've scored some incredible counter-attacking goals under Bielsa. But it wasn't there, and, and it wasn't there because they, they didn't have the precision to play through the gaps and, and to play through the press. This is actually the longest period that the great man has stayed at any club in his career. Why do you think that is? I think he I think he's been able to relate to the club and the city in, in a very big way. I think he sees a lot in Leeds and, and Leeds United um, that he saw in Newell's Old Boys as his first love back in Argentina. On on top of that, the way in which the club operates and, and the structure of management they have has, has worked for him too. He has a very good relationship with, with Victor Orta, the director of football. And and I always think that one of the things about keeping Bielsa in post for any length of time, beyond the results having to be good and, and the performances having, having to click is the ability to to manage him, you know, to manage him, to keep him satisfied, to, to keep him happy. He is extraordinarily demanding. Um, he can be extremely hard work. But there is a good, strong relationship there. Um, the players have warmed him right from the start. And I think, I think it's helped that him going into the championship made him mix with a lot of players who realised that they were working with a coach whose, whose status and profile... It should have been. It should have been earning him jobs at a higher level of the league. They knew it would be good for him. Uh, for them, they they knew that it would improve them as players, and they can see that that it definitely has. Um, so you're right. I mean, he's gone far beyond um, the, the time he spent at previous European clubs in this job. 
Um, but you never know with BLC, you never know how, how long it will last for. And you do know that deep down it can't last forever. But you would you would back him to turn things around, would you? What's your gut feeling on this, this time, this season? I do think they'll be okay this season. I think they have enough good players and I think they have enough um, enough coaching behind them to be fine. I think there will be three worse teams than them. Second season after promotion, it would be a good thing for the club to, to stay up, to take another tranche of, of Premier League money and then to think about how they're going to attack this again next summer. But they, they have big plans for the stadium uh, redevelopment of Ellen Road and they have big plans for European football at some point, hopefully. So they 100% have to stay in the league this season. They, they cannot countenance relegation. This season's leads are, by popular consent, Brentford, of course. And fresh from their narrow defeat to Chelsea last time out, they're going to be taking on Leicester. I imagine you saw them in all their splendour against Chelsea, did you, Dom? Yeah, I was there. And um, I I was actually, I'll be honest, I was actually a bit disappointed with their performance for the first 70 minutes of that game. I thought Mm. they allowed Chelsea to... To control to a certain extent without creating an awful lot of chances. So Brentford defended well, but we, we didn't see any of their frantic attacking until that last 17 minutes and six minutes of stoppage time when they were unbelievable. I mean, the the, the battering they subjected Chelsea to for that last period was was something else. I, I haven't seen a, a t- Thomas Tuchel team, uh, well, certainly a Thomas Tuchel Chelsea team, labour to that extent to, to preserve their advantage. I mean, it was... It was unbelievable. Zanka, th- long throws, arrowing into the box. There were crosses. Every every, every Chelsea defender, the, the the reaction was slightly delayed in that they, they'd sort of watched the ball soar over their heads. They turned to see where it had gone. It was already coming back the other way. And it was, it was, it was mayhem. But Edward Mendy was outstanding and, and, and preserved Chelsea's victory. But, but that was Brentford. That is, that is what you want to see from the start from Brentford. You want to see them tearing into teams and, and playing with that, with that frantic pace and, and, and causing such chaos. And I suspect that they'll fly into this game against Leicester in that style. They would have been disappointed themselves. In fact, Thomas Frank said post-match that he, he hadn't seen the Brentford that he recognised in the first hour of that match uh, on Saturday. But my word, in the last 25 minutes, they made up for it. Mm. Leicester were involved in a bit of a thriller midweek after their 4-2 win over Man United at the weekend. They were at Spartak Moscow early Wednesday in the Europa League and went 2-0 down but then came roaring back 1-4-3. All of the Leicester goals scored by Patson Daka. Doesn't that make him Leicester's all-time joint record scorer in Europe? It does, it does. It's astonishing, isn't it? He's, he yeah. looks a player. Him, I mean, he'll he'll presumably is a long term successor to Jamie Vardy at some stage. But some of the finishing was spectacular. Yeah, he um he massively overperformed his uh, his xG uh, last mm. season. So he he did look like a prospect. Um, and you know, obviously first Zambian to score in the Premier League last weekend. So yeah, he looks good. And another goal for Jamie Vardy, Duncan. Um, yeah, that also happened. Yeah. Um, Obviously How many said, is he on now? He's on seven in the Premier League, which makes him join. In eight score. starts. Yeah, well, we've all got numbers. But um, as I said last week, <laughs> I will be, like the Bank of England, adjusting my prediction. Um, last week, you remember, I raised it to 11 for the season. Hmm. Um, we had another meeting this week. We were sticking at 11. So, Are you? Yeah. We think that 11 is Doubling is down hmm. on your Jamie Vardy doubting. It's extraordinary. I, I would argue that this game, more than... 
for a long time. I mean, you don't have to pick just one game, but if you did have to pick one game this weekend to watch, might it be Brentford Leicester over, say, for example, Man United Liverpool? I think it's a very good warm up, isn't it, for a Super Sunday? Um, to have it you know you're settling down for that afternoon you know you're getting a bit of fun at Brentford against Leicester before before the main meal a moose-bouche exactly cruelly though it's an moose-bouche that is off the menu for uh, UK viewers because that game I now see is not being televised the Brentford Leicester one instead uh, they're going the TV bigwigs with West Ham Spurs well, talking of menus, West Ham are trying to go three unbeaten against Spurs for the first time since Lasagna Gate back in uh, in two thousand and six. So, um, obviously, they've probably got more to worry about with rice than pasta these days. But um, it should still be a good game. Thanks, Adam Crafton, for reminding me of rice as a foodstuff off air. Spurs are somehow fifth, uh, two places ahead of West Ham. Spurs have won the same number of games as Liverpool and Man City. Extraordinary. Both teams will have been in action on Thursday by the time they face off at the London Stadium. Harry Kane is not in the uh, Tottenham party, who are heading off to Arnhem to take on Vitesse in the Europa Conference League. And he's now scored four goals in his last four games against the Hammers and is looking signs of, you know, return to form. Yeah, they've also, they've left half the squad at home, haven't they? They've sort Mm. of left the players. Ten players. Yeah, yeah. which is surely a bit of a giveaway for David Moyes um, <laughs> for, for, for Sunday, um, as well as I'm, I'm quite interested. I suppose on the dynamic of you know knowing you're in. It's like being in the A team and B team at school, isn't it? Where you know you're just not really rated by the manager. You know your Deli Alleys and Harry Winks and things like that. But yeah, quite interesting. And they've left them with the first team. The first team coach, I think Ian Cathro, has stayed at home. One of the reasons given for that was that he'd recently, I think, become a father. So he's uh, staying at the training ground to work with that core group of players. Though when I first read it, when they said that he's sort of recently become a father, I kind of read it as in, it looks like he's literally become these, this group of players. <laughs> <laughs> Caretaker dad. Um, wow, Nuno's away. Um, so, yeah, interesting um, move, but probably quite sensible at the same time. What's the point of making all those players travel if they're not going to play? Absolutely. Well, that's a big game. Arsenal will be kicking off the Premier League weekend on the Friday. Uh, they're up against Aston Villa, who did the double over the Gunners last mm. season. Have won the last three meetings between these two sides. What did you make of Arsenal Monday night, Dom? I started very well, and and I think they were permitted to dominate the last ten minutes by some of the um, Palace substitutions. But generally speaking, I I wasn't that impressed with them through that middle period. Um, they they looked as if, and I think Mikel Arteta suggested as much post match as well that. There was something not quite right. They sort of retreated in themselves and were slightly too tentative with, with, with their play. I suppose the loss of Saka probably played a part in that and that's, that is a blow to them if he's if his, if his injury keeps him out this weekend, an injury inflicted by what I I think was an inadvertent kick, but it did look it looked dreadful. Um, when he was he volleyed it. by James MacArthur, essentially. Into the, into the net, pretty much, um, when the ball wasn't that close. But I think it's just it's just Arsenal, though, isn't it? It's 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 the way they are. They, I think they flatter to see sometimes. Some of their some of their attacking play promises quite a lot, and then they'll find a way of undermining it at the other end as well. And and I think that that performance on Monday summed that up. They'll have to be they'll have to be better to 
to beat Aston Villa because they'll, they'll they'll come as wounded animals after what happened to them against Wolves. Hmm. Everton, meanwhile, up against Watford and Southampton. Burnley, both at three o'clock on Saturday, are the other two matches this weekend. Everton, who've uh, had some bad news, suspected broken metatarsal for Abdullah Dukure, who's expected us to be out for six weeks. Only Paul Pogba has had more assists than Dukure in the Premier League this season. Crikey. And of course, he would have been facing his former side. Yeah, and he's been brilliant. I mean, the the upset from Everton fans when the news came out was was understandable. He's been the, the linchpin of that team this season. And, you know, metatarsal... Let's hope he goes for a David Beckham quick heel style uh, mm. approach. But uh, obviously this was the snake classico, wasn't it, a few seasons ago? Mm. Remember the Marco Silva? <laughs> um, will Watford fans be bringing rubber snakes to this game or is this the moment past? I sh- they should do it in I a retro. I think it's past since Marco Silva's no longer involved. Yeah, but it's for good to keep team. these traditions is, alive, isn't it? So. Is there a Richarlison motif that they could play on? Because he will be. He's now available, apparently, after missing four league games for injury. Uh, he is available for Afro again against his former side. Uh, Dominic Cavett-Lewin, though, uh, reportedly suffering complications on his rehab. Yeah, Tom Cleverley as well. Oh, yeah. There's quite a lot of links, actually. Last on totally, anyway, it is Saints against Burnley. Burnley winners in their opening eight Premier League games. The second time that we've had three sides still looking for a first victory this deep into the season. What, what do you reckon on the Clarets' chances of of finally getting a first win at St Mary's. Um, they really need one. It's quite weird. They've mm. not played badly this season at all from what I've seen of them. They've actually played pretty well and deserve to get more. I know they never really score that many goals, but they're, they're really struggling to score goals this time around. And it'll be quite interesting, particularly if I don't think it's impossible that Newcastle go for a couple of Burnley players in January as well which would potentially give them money to spend, but it would also potentially nobble their direct opponents, um, which was something that Man City did really well in their early period when they started to have money in sort of 2008, 2009. You sort of remember how they would, you know, first of all, they went to get Jolien Lescott from Everton, then Gareth Barry from uh, Aston Villa, and then they ate Arsenal by getting Adebayor and Colo Torre. I think, you know, each time just whoever you think's just that near you or above you, they would keep buying from those clubs and weakening those clubs. Um, so I think the James Tarkovsky situation might be an interesting one in January. I know it sounds like a very predictable move that Newcastle m- might make when they need a centre-back, but I think it is one that you know I'd, I'd watch closely. Um, but yeah, they really do need to get a win. Ben, me and Tarkovsky have given up more XG than any other central defensive partnership in the Premier League this season. And... The forwards at Burnley work really hard. Burnley don't really press, but the in terms of the pressing from the forwards, you know, Chris Wood gets through an enormous amount of work, and I think that does negatively impact their scoring sometimes because they're just you know left to do quite a lot of the the defensive work from the front. So um, it feels like the the system that Dyche has kind of used well in the last few seasons, even when they've struggled, they've kind of recovered. Feels like he does need to make a few tweaks this season because it is mm. it's not really working. Is it right that no team in the top four tiers of English league football has a longer winless run than Burnley, Duncan? That is correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. 11 games, Claret's failing to score in seven of those matches. All right, very good. Very shortly, we're going to be diving back in again on that Newcastle controversy and other things too, talking about the greatest goal ever in football. Not my words, those of Adam Hurry. 
First of all, though, let's join Carl Monaghan and producer Charlie for some odds from Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. It's a sad day here in the Paddy Power odds section, as Steve Bruce is no longer part of the Premier League scene. I'm still here, so too is Carl Monaghan. The question is, Carl, who will be the next Newcastle manager? Gerard, Lampard, Gerard and Lampard working together in perfect harmony at last? Gerard and Lampard together. You really cracked me up, Charlie. Well, Stevie G is 16 to 1 and Frankie Lampard is 14s. But, uh, Charlie, the odds on favourite at 4 to 9 in the betting to succeed Steve Bruce is one pound of Fonseca. The former Roma boss had held talks with Spurs, you might remember, in the summer, but didn't dig the tune that Daniel Levy uh, was playing. He has had successful trophy-laden spells at both Braga in Portugal and Shakhtar Donetsk in the Ukraine and has a pretty impressive head of hair as well, although it could be a very expensive wig. Either way, Charlie, the Portuguese coach, is leading the market for now to take over at the cash-rich Magpies. Former Dortmund boss Lucien Favre is second in the betting at 5-1. to one. And then there's Belgium's manager Roberto Martinez and then Eddie Howe at 15-2. to two. And if you fancy Wayne Rooney to take over the reins at the tune, we'll give you a massive 50-1 to one and a phone number for a good shrink. Looking at this weekend's fixtures, my eye is drawn to Everton v Watford. The Hornets have never won at Goodison. They look like they might never win again based on the performance against Liverpool. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel for Claudio up against Rafa? Well, if you're going to get a result against the Toffees at the moment, Charlie, I suppose it's a good time to play them and they're without their prime goal scores. We know that Dominic Calvert-Lewin is definitely out of Saturday's game, but Richarlison may make the bench. Whatever happens, it gives Claudio Ranieri's Watford a chance to get something from the game. Chasing Salah's shadow was not the ideal fixture in his return to the Premier League, but the smiley Italian will be hoping his side can bounce back with a morale-boosting display at least. And after last week, that wouldn't even be a win, Charlie. A draw would be a fine result for the Hornets, who have never won, like you say, at Goodison Park. Injuries to key players, though, looks to be catching up with Everton at the moment, as they have won once in their last five in all comps. So a point for Watford is not a complete absurd conclusion. In terms of the betting, Everton are odds on for the win at 8-13. to The draw, which I like, is 11-4. to And the unlikely Watford win, Charlie, is 9-2. to you can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. The terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. I had a full midweek fixture list in the EFL and you can hear all about what happened in those games. And the Totally Football League show, of course, which is out on Thursday with Matt Davis-Adams, of course. They'll be talking about the incredible finish in the Nottingham Forest-Bristol City game. Forrester are absolutely flying under their new manager, Steve Cooper. 13 points from a possible 15. Conversely, Nigel Pearson's Bristol City have now failed to win in their last 17 home matches in the championship. Also, I think the Matt has earmarked a good chunk of time to talk about Plymouth's goal in their 3-0 victory over Bolton. Have you, have you seen this? Mm. Is this the one where you go I diving have, yeah. in the mud? I mean, it's yeah, just it's it's one of those goals where if you if you like the idea of football but played under entirely different laws of physics, then you'll enjoy this. I mean, basically, if you take out if you imagine football played with a square ball, for example, this is more or less because the the water on the pitch effectively renders any kind of rolling just completely out of the question, and and players struggling in real time to adjust their expectations, mm. their kind of vector dynamics, in accordance with the weather conditions. It, I mean, I make it sound quite dull, but it's brilliant. You have to watch it. It is uh, League One leaders Plymouth 3-0 over Bolton. And a very, very special goal. All right. 
and the and the sort of celebration you want to see from that goal as well a, a full hands forward uh, slide face down across the water essentially so magnificent and still going now possibly because it was that kind of day <laughs> um now let's finish off back on newcastle because so many different aspects to the new situation for that club and there was a lot of talk about the Newcastle fans dressed up in kind of what they saw as traditional Arab dress for Newcastle's first game under their new owners. There were also protests. Uh, there was a, a large kind of mobile sign with Jamal Khashoggi's face. Uh, Khashoggi, of course, uh, murdered inside the Saudi embassy in Istanbul three years ago. And also LGBT plus protests, or at least signs calling attention to the oppression and in some cases torture even that that community is facing in the kingdom. Um, Adam, you wrote a really exceptional piece in which you spoke to some of the people directly affected by this. And there's just, I mean, some of the stories are absolutely chilling in that. I can ask a really naive question uh, as we touch on this, which is whether while Saudi investment in and arms deals and all that kind of thing tends to just pass silently in the background whether them buying into sports and this whole sports washing thing means that there is actually a positive in this which is that things like Khashoggi are are brought up again things like uh, their oppression of various different communities and 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 groups are brought to the public's eye and, and possibly possibly whilst it's heartbreaking and to borrow one quote from your piece uh, for those people affected to see people in the West celebrating uh, the oppressors, the, the fact that they, these these subjects are being raised in in areas that they wouldn't necessarily have got got so much attention before, maybe that is one positive thing. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. It was a point I think that Gary Neville made on Monday Night Football the other day as well. That you know, an increased contact, an increased exposure between different societies can potentially trigger some sort of long-term change nobody's pretending that you know because Newcastle owners pop over to Newcastle every so often that all of a sudden they're going to legalize um, homosexuality and give women you know totally equal rights and stakes in society and things like that Um, but I'm equally uncomfortable with the idea that you know we just decide this part of the world's not worth dealing with ever as well Mm. you know to basically give up on people um, I think that's a very interesting uh, debate. I, th- I think what is really interesting is, you know, there's a lot of different groups or countries or states that have been accused of sports washing at different points. And it's actually, you know, one of the things I'm keen to look into is, you know, to what extent has that worked for them? And also, has there been any change in, in countries where, you know, because they've had this increased contact, whether it's in the Premier League or France or or things like that, you know, I think if you speak to Qataris, they will, people in the Qatari government, they'll tell you that their working conditions have changed. Um, They're not what we would consider to be, you know, completely acceptable by any means, but there has been a change as a result of the scrutiny and pressure that's been applied. On the other hand, you know, there's accounts that say, you know, UAE's human rights conditions have not really changed or improved too much um, since... um, since the the takeover of Manchester City, so I, I do think it's an interesting thing. I think where it's different a little bit with with, this, with the Saudis is that the Khashoggi thing was such an international incident. We I don't think we've ever had one before where you know you can directly relate a head of state where the CIA has released 
an intelligence report to say that it is likely that he approved the operation that led to Khashoggi's murder. It's such a an escalation of what we've seen before, I think, in, in the Premier League, that that's why it's getting the attention that it is. There was the van that encircled St. James's Park um, last Sunday for the game against Spurs. Obviously, the, the conditions for LGBT people are absolutely appalling. Um, you know, for the report I did, we had to change everyone's name, very, very careful about, you know, what platforms we were using and things like that, just in case Saudi security agencies decide they want to get get hold of these people who have spoken to me because there's people, you know, one of the charges, you know, according to the BBC that was made against uh, Lujain Al-Hathlou, who was one of the female activists who who campaigned for years for women to be able to drive in Saudi Arabia. That was then approved by the Saudi Arabian government. But then after that, she's now in prison after they approved the thing that, that she wanted. And, and one of the, the charges that was alleged to be against her is advancing you know, contact with external organizations or advancing a foreign agenda. Um, so we had to be super careful about you know, giving out any kind of information that could make these people traceable um, that had spoken to me. And you know, I think that just kind of brings home just how bleak the conditions are if you are born a certain way in Saudi Arabia still. Mm. Do you take any positives from from the fact that we're we're able to highlight this, or is it actually just a really depressing uh, thing to write about? Um, in some ways, it was a nice thing to be able to give people a voice that never get a voice, um, to be able to tell properly what is happening there, to apply that scrutiny and ask those questions and share that with a broader audience. Also, to to expose you know football fans who don't usually you know, talk that much about LGBT issues anywhere, never mind Saudi Arabia, to reading a piece like that was was obviously rewarding. But it's also, you know, they, they are, <laughs> it was quite funny because, not funny, but they were talking about, you know, the things that were happening to them. And, and one of them said to me, you know, I've seen these videos of Newcastle fans wearing like Arab wear and also brandishing Saudi flags. And they're like, I just don't really understand, like, why do they want to celebrate it? And so I kind of found myself there sort of explaining, well, there's this guy called Mike Ashley and he's been there for, you know, 10 to 15 years and they've kind of bobbed up and down between the Premier League and the Championship and there was this sponsorship with Wonga and I just sort of found myself explaining because I'd been asked to but also just sort of shrinking in my seat as you explain it because it's so, it's not an equivalence and I think it's one of the things that's probably been a bit wrong about some of the reporting over the last couple of weeks the idea that you know the plight of Newcastle fans is in some way equal to the plight of people who are suffering under the regime in in Saudi Arabia um but equally you know people see things through the vision of of their own lives don't they and you know Newcastle fans are allowed to feel aggrieved by what happened under Mike Ashley and they're allowed to be happy that he's no longer there and that, mm. that you know I'm, also, I'm not here to tell Newcastle fans how to feel but th- that's how it was a very difficult thing to explain to people who, who, you know, just can't be themselves whatsoever. Obviously, the Premier League insists that the Saudi state is entirely separate from the Saudi Public Investment Fund. They say it's an autonomous, commercially driven investment fund that's not linked to the Saudi Arabian state. Um, although mm. we do know that the PIF board is chaired by Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and six government ministers and a royal court advisor. Everyone needs a hobby, Adam. 
Nothing wrong yeah. with that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Newcastle fans will react how they see fit, but it's a, always a good thing to be informed about these things. Adam's piece on The Athletic. Loads of other ones as well, because uh, so many different areas in which the unrelated Saudi government uh, makes life pretty awful for a whole range of people. Of course, they're not the only ones doing that. Governments elsewhere not doing a particularly good job, etc. and so on. But anyway, crikey. With that, we come to the end of today's Totally Football show. Uh, we will be back on Monday morning. Why not join us as we round up the weekend's news and look ahead to whatever's happening next week. For now, many thanks to Adam Crafton and to Dominic Fifield and to Duncan Alexander and producer Charlie. This is last name Charlie, first name producer. You listener, our thanks as ever. And uh, have a great weekend, why don't you? We'll see you soon. Cheerio. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.